It's my um, pleasure and privilege now to uh, share, from, share from the Bible, to share um, some things that I believe God might be wanting to say to us through his word. And uh, for those of you who are guests today, you won't know that we have been uh, tracking through one of the accounts of Jesus's life, uh, Luke. Uh, and we're actually coming to the end of a series. We're not at the end of Luke, but we're finishing where we are for a little bit. So we're in Luke chapter 7. This is one of the uh, this is a man called Luke who gathered together all kinds of different eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, and he recorded them, and they are part of the New Testament. Um, and today, uh, in this last part, we've been looking at it under the, under the lens of wanting to be more like Jesus. So the way that we get to be more like Jesus is to spend time with him and to get to know what he is like and to ask him to work in us. Today, we are looking at uh, this topic overflowing worship. Today we, we encounter someone who worships Jesus in a really significant and in a really powerful way. In some ways, today is less about being more like Jesus and being more like this woman in this story. Though we'll actually see that in many of the ways she behaves, she herself behaves like Jesus as she comes to worship him. Today we've, uh, we've had a baptism, two baptisms, uh, I wonder, for those of you who are here, um, I know that some of you will have been baptized. I'm sure some of you will not have been. But if, you, if you've been baptized, um, and if you can remember that time, I wonder what it was for you, when it was for you, what it was like for you. For me, the 24th of March, 2002, I was 13 years old, and if you want to do the maths on that and figure out my age now, feel free. But it was in Sindelsham Baptist Church in Reading. I wasn't part of Sindelsham Baptist Church, but the church that, me, that, 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 we, that I was part of, uh, we met in a community centre. We didn't have a, a pool like this. And one of the churches that had, uh, that had clubbed together with a couple of other churches and said, there's this new housing estate in Reading. We need to make sure there's a church there. And three different churches came together and planted into this new area of Reading. And one of those churches was Sindelsham Baptist Church. And so I was going back to um, the church that, uh, actually the year I was born, planted this church in which I came to faith. And it was a celebration for them, it was a celebration for me. And so for me, that was, a, that was an important day, the 24th of March, 2002. Why do I share that? Well, I think that in what we see, in what we see of this woman who chooses to worship Jesus in a special way, she did it because she was remembering something. She did it because of something that Jesus had done and that she was choosing to hold on to that. For me, as I look back at that 13-year-old version of myself, in some ways I wish I had his faith now. In some ways I wish I had his excitement for Jesus now. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, sometimes I've lost it. But in that moment, there was something of true overflowing worship in my life that I want to get back to. Not to go backwards in my life, but I want to have that rekindled in me. I wonder if there are others who might be, there, might be like that as well. But when we talk about worship, I'm not just talking about what we do here on Sundays. Or what we do when we gather with other Christians. I'm talking about the whole of our lives. Johnny was sharing just earlier on, wasn't he? That wherever we are, whatever passion God has given us, wherever he's placed us, whatever industry, whatever profession, whatever environment or context we find ourselves in, that is a place for God to be at work. And that is a place where we can worship him too. Before I read the passage, I just want to set up a little bit about what's going on. Because in this passage, there's Jesus, and then really there's two other characters. And they are deliberately 
contrasted with one another. The first one uh, we, we read about is, is, is referred to as one of the Pharisees. Later on in the passage, we hear his name. He's called Simon. But for the first part of this story, where there's, where there's this comparison between two people, he's just one of the Pharisees. The other person that we hear about is a woman who lived a sinful life. We don't know what sinful life she lived. Some people say she would have been a prostitute. Some people said that she might have been uh, demon-possessed because of things she... We, we, we don't know. We don't know what it was that she'd done. We don't know what, what it was that meant that in her society she was seen as the bottom of the heap and someone that you wouldn't want to be around. But this is the comparison. How does one of the Pharisees treat Jesus? And how does a woman who had lived a sinful life treat Jesus? So, let's read this together. It's in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to start by reading verses 36 to 38. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This is the difference between how the Pharisee treats Jesus and how the woman treats Jesus. And I think as we look at this comparison, at the different ways that they relate to him, we see something of what true worship to Jesus can look like. The first is that she goes to Jesus. True worship is not about saying, God, this is my life. I'm staying still. Can you come and be, be in it, please? Can, can you come and just sort of in, in, occupy the things that I've already decided to do? Agree with the decisions I've already decided to make. Say yes to the things that I've already decided I want. See, the, the Pharisee, this man, this man who was one of the Pharisees, he was having a dinner party. He was having a, a banquet with all of, the, all of the impressive people and all of his friends and presumably a number of other Pharisees. And he thought, you know what would be good? There's this, there's this teacher I've heard about. Why don't I invite him to come and join me? He invites Jesus, which is a good thing to do. But better still is this woman who hears where Jesus is and she goes to him. Worship is not about saying, once my needs have been met, once I'm comfortable, once I'm happy with the environment or with what's going on, then and only then will I invite Jesus to join and to take a seat at the table. No, worship is about saying, I will go to him. I will pursue him where he is and give my life to him there. That's part of what true worship is. At my, uh, at my baptism, I was allowed to choose a baptism song. Uh, and I chose the song, which at the time was very hip and trendy. It was, uh, Lord, reign in me. Reign in your power over every dream in my darkest hour. Um, I can't remember all the words, so I'm going to stop there. But it was all about, Lord, come and take your place in my life. Which in some ways is exactly what this Pharisee was doing. But in, in other ways, for me, in that moment, I was saying, Jesus, I want you to be Lord. And where you are, I will go there. Sometimes I've lost that in my life. Sometimes I've become comfortable and I just want Jesus to come and, and, and take a seat at my table instead of saying, Jesus, where's your table? I want to meet you there. The second thing that we see about this woman and her true worship is that it was costly. 
We don't know how much this alabaster jar that she brings to Jesus and pours over him and anoints him with the perfume that's in it. We don't know how much it would have cost, but it would have been costly. She's described as a woman who'd lived a sinful life. Inevitably, that would have meant no one would have wanted to employ her. No one would have wanted to associate with her. She would not have been wealthy. And yet, she goes and buys this costly thing and she pours it out wastefully, recklessly, stupidly at the feet of Jesus. It is financially a totally stupid thing to do. No wise financial planner would have said, yeah, absolutely, that's a good use of the little resources you've got. True worship is not about saying, I'll keep it safe and I'll keep it sensible and I'll only do things when I've counted the cost and figured out that it's going to be fine and and make sure that there's no risk involved. This woman is, she's ridiculous. She does something that is stupid. I wonder when the last time you did something stupid for Jesus was. If you're a follower of Jesus, when was the last time you did something that the world would look at and go, that is the wrong choice. And you said, yeah, I know, but Jesus. I know, but, but Jesus, I'm going I'm to go and do it anyway. When's the last time you, you chose to do something that would, that would dent your own finances or dent your own reputation? For me, when I was 13, being baptized at Sindelsham Baptist Church, um, it was financially, well, it didn't cost me anything. Uh, they didn't even charge me for heating the water. And it was lovely and heated, but it didn't cost me anything financially. It cost me something socially, though. I had a few of my friends there. I invited a number of people from my school to come. And all of my Christian friends came. And none of my non-Christian friends came. Um, which in some ways is going, oh, well, what was the point of... Sort of d- 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 doesn't matter. You know, they, they still get to know me where I am at school. But the, then the bullying starts, doesn't it? Because it was the first time that I told some of those people at school hey, I'm a Christian, and actually I'm doing this thing that's really important. And I remember just a couple of months later, we were out uh, having, uh, playing cricket as part of a games lesson. And I'm there, about to, uh, I'm there at the, at the crease. Um, I'm not, as you can tell, this, 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 this experience scarred me so much that I never played cricket again. No, but I was there, uh, and the guy who was the wicketkeeper behind me, just as the ball start, starts coming in, he starts teasing me. He starts making fun of me about the fact that I'd been baptized, about the fact that I was a Christian. It was costly. As I was being baptized when I was 13, if you told me about that cost, which I knew might well come, I would not have cared. Because Jesus, because he was more important than that. I had that. I wish I still had that every moment of every day. Sometimes I don't. True worship is going to cost us something. Because Jesus. It's also emotional for this woman. This isn't just something she decides to do, goes in, does perfectly calmly, and then leaves. She's weeping. She's weeping with Jesus. It's emotional. It's moved her. It's touched not just her actions, not just her mind. It's touched her heart. I wish that I still had that every moment of every day. Age 13, I remember that baptism for me being an emotional day. Hugging all my friends, which as a 13-year-old boy wasn't something I did a lot. But it was emotional. It was moving. I remember being, being caught up in it because Jesus. I wonder if sometimes we lose that. This true worship of Jesus is also extravagant. It's not just something that's costly. It's also something that's 
it's a little bit extra. It's a little bit over the top. It's a little bit much, some would say. Why can't she just worship like a proper Jewish person? Why can't she do the proper things? This isn't, this isn't something that's, that's required. This isn't something that's, that's normal. This is something that's, that's a bit much. It's a bit over the top. Some might argue that two teenage boys getting dunked in, a, in essentially a big bath in front of a couple of hundred people is a bit much. It's a bit over the top. It's a bit extra. But Jesus is worth it. Not just costly, not just financially stupid, but just a bit bizarre, a bit odd, a bit, a bit over the top, a bit extravagant what this woman does. For me, when I was baptized, it was in some ways no more extravagant than any other baptism, except, I'll tell you this story, um, it turns out that the trousers I'd chosen to wear that day were waterproof. I didn't realize they were, but they were. Um, and they were also elasticated at the bottom. And you can get a set. I wish I could tell you that back then it was trendy. It was not. So as I went in, they were also quite baggy. So as I went in, none of the air left them which essentially meant I had two balloons for legs. And as I went backwards, my feet started to rise up. It was, there's a, there's a strong chance that my left knee has not been saved. I don't know. But, but no, it wasn't any more extravagant than anyone else's baptism. It just went a bit wrong. But when was the last time we did something for Jesus that was just a bit over the top and a bit out there and a bit much? Because Jesus, simply because Jesus, because he is worth it. In the drop-in we have on Tuesdays and Thursdays here um, for uh, people who are hosting Ukrainian refugees and for the Ukrainians themselves to come along to, I was chatting to a 15-year-old boy called Igor, um, who's from Ukraine, and I asked, him, um, I asked him, is there anything that surprised you since you've come over here? And he, he immediately said, yes. And I said, oh, this is interesting. What is it that surprised you? And he said, well, in popular culture... The way that English people are portrayed, he has very good English. These are pretty much his words. In popular culture, the way that English people are portrayed is very straight and serious and, ooh, what's the weather like today? Ooh, it's very cloudy, isn't it? Ooh, have a good day. That was his perception of what English people might be like. And he came and he told me, you're not. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> what good news. But let's not be like that with Jesus. Let's not just be straight and serious and keep it level and keep it... Let's not relate to Jesus the way that Igor expects English people or British people to relate to one another. True worship goes beyond that. It can be a bit extra. I've said a few times I'd love to get back to that. How do we do that? Well, the story carries on and this is where we learn the man's name. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. I'm not going to say too much about this because, let's be honest, it's, it's not rocket science. Jesus tells this very simple story. Someone who two people owe them different amounts of money and he forgives both debts and the one who has been forgiven the most is the most grateful and has the most love for the person who's forgiven the debts. 
That's, that's all that Jesus wants us to get out of this. And it's something that we would all be able to relate to and understand. But then Jesus carries on. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the eldership of this church were meeting to pray. And we were praying and we were praying for you and praying for our church family and praying for things that were going on. We were taking time to, to listen to things that God might be wanting to say to us. And one of my fellow elders had a sense that, that God was really wanting to speak a particular verse of scripture to us as a church family. And when he shared that, I said, can, can we save that for this morning? Because I want to share it as part of this. And it's found in Psalm 51. And it's the verse that says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And what this elder was sensing and believing God was saying is that for some of us, we need to ask God to restore to us the joy that comes from his salvation of us, from his acceptance of us, from his forgiveness of us, that we need to have that joy restored because that is where true worship comes from. That's what Jesus says, isn't it? Someone who's been forgiven a lot is very grateful and loves a lot. Someone who's been forgiven little is less grateful, is less bothered, doesn't respond in worship. And he, and he says that just after comparing what Simon, this Pharisee, had done and what this woman has done, just as we've been doing. And then he says these words, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. The good news that Christian word, the gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is this, that every single thing that we have done, are doing, or will do is covered by him, is covered by his death upon the cross. And so with this woman, we can know that our sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And so we can respond to Jesus in great love Restore to us the joy of your salvation, Lord. Amen? The Pharisee, though, doesn't get it. Because part, part of what he hears Jesus say, he thinks applies to himself, I think. Because Jesus goes on to say, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And I'm pretty sure that this Pharisee at that moment would have gone, yeah, I haven't needed to be forgiven that much. I've only been forgiven a little. I know I'm not perfect, perfect, but I'm a Pharisee. I'm very, very good. I'm a good, holy, upright person. People look to my example. People follow me. I'm a teacher of the law. I know the scriptures inside out, and I've lived them better than most. I don't need a lot of forgiveness. That's the heart of the Pharisee. That's the heart of someone who doesn't truly worship 
God because they don't feel as though they have that level of gratitude towards him. Because they don't need a lot of forgiveness. And that, in honesty, is why sometimes I think I have lost what the 13-year-old Dave had. Because I've settled into this position where I go, you know what, I'm, I'm not too bad. I'm not such a bad person. I know the scriptures quite well. I live them out quite well. People, people look to me. People are led by me. And whether you can say that for yourself or not, sometimes we can settle into this place where we go, yeah, I know I needed Jesus' forgiveness to become a follower of him. But I'm kind of doing quite well now by myself, aren't I? And as soon as I do that, I've lost the joy of my salvation. I've lost the joy of knowing how much I needed Jesus and just how much he's given me. And I can settle into this Pharisee mode where I say, Jesus, can you come to me? And yet I'll worship you, but not in ways that are going to be too costly. I'm not going to do anything too over the top. I'm not going to be that emotional because, because I don't feel it anymore. And when we find ourselves in those places, we simply need to come to God and say, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Not because we've lost our salvation, we need to get it back. But because we need to be re-infused with the joy of it, with the life that it brings, with the, with the excitement that it brings. And then we can, we can be more like this woman. What is it that the crowds say? They say, who is this who even forgives sins? And the answer to that is, Jesus. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus forgives everything. Jesus embraces you. Those darkest things that you wish you hadn't done, that you wish other people didn't know that you'd done, or that other people don't know that you've done, but you do. Those things Jesus forgives. Those things Jesus says, come and be my brother anyway. Come and be my sister anyway. Let me show you to my father's house because there's a room that I've prepared in it just for you. That is what Jesus does for us. And that is what leads us back to worship. Her many sins have been forgiven and her great love showed it. What does my love for Jesus show? Does it show that I know that or does it show that I'm living as if I didn't need it in the first place? The good news of Jesus is that he's done everything for us. I said that this woman showed us actually a little bit of what Jesus is like as well. Because he didn't stay where he was comfortable. No, he came to us. Just like she went to where he was, he came to where we are. He came here. He came to earth. He came into our lives, those of us who've received him. And what he did was extremely costly. It was stupid to come and die for the benefit of the people who were going to be ungrateful anyway. But he did it anyway. It didn't make sense. It was extravagant. It was over the top. And it was emotional for him. He felt it and he wanted it. He wept over those who were so lost. Because it meant something to him. In this woman's worship of Jesus, we see a little picture of Jesus' heart for us, not his worship of us, but his heart towards us and where he would go, the depths of pain he would go to for us. So, can I invite you, if you've not received that and responded to that, then the door is open. Who is this who forgives sins? Jesus, and he can do it for you. And he longs to do it for you. 
to invite you into his family. If you have done that, and if you know that you probably do need to pray that prayer, restore to me the joy of your salvation, Lord, then don't wait. Don't waste any time. Pray that prayer and choose to worship Jesus now. And then we'll see where he takes us. So can I invite Malcolm and the band to come back and join us? And I'm going to pray. You might like to join with me as I do. Lord God, I thank you for this example in your word of what it looks like to seek you in ways that you yourself honor. I pray that you would revive us where we need to be revived. You would revive worship. You would revive joy. You would revive hope and life and excitement. And Lord, would that never be because of the, the, the eloquence of a person or the skill of a musician or the, the poetry of lyrics or the context we find ourselves in or the lighting or the whatever it is, Lord, would it never be because of that that we come alive before you? Would it always be because we are people who know what you have done and want to return our gratitude and our joy back to you for it? Restore to us the joy of your salvation.